I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention if you need a Bible, and they'll get one of those to you, marked for you at Acts chapter 1. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. So Acts chapter 1. In an article in National Review magazine a couple of weeks ago, it was about church names. And it said, what we call our churches can teach us something about our faith. Not ten miles from my front door, says the author, sits Old New Hope Baptist Church. One tries to parse the theology of that designation, one fails. A Sunday drive through the greater Nashville area brings a traveler face-to-face with any number of disorienting appellations. In nearby Lyles, for example, Higher Ground Church is practically neighbored by Rock Valley Church, a topographical mystery that would test the divination of even the Church of God of Prophecy down the road. Driving to my brother-in-law's house, I pass both Meeting Place Church, whose sign features a curiously unspiritual red leather sofa, and Old Path Baptist Church, whose marker decidedly doesn't. A church on Hillsborough Road, halfway between Nashville and next door Franklin, declares itself the, quote, home of the fish fry. A description rendered not in a changeable letterboard, but in words that have been chiseled like the Ten Commandments into a stone on the lawn. The names we call our churches have long provided a window into our souls, to borrow an irresistible cliché. From the sturdy and declarative Puritans came sturdy and declarative names. First Church in Salem, 1629. First Church in Boston, 1630. Old Ship Church, 1681. Today's houses of worship, though, are more likely to describe themselves using using such unthreatening non-sequiturs as Rise and Journey. The better to draw millennials who might be put off by language suggestive of actual doctrinal positions. What the Oasis Church in Southeast Nashville believes is anyone's guess, as are the creedal identities of the River Church in Tampa and Vision Church in New York and others like them throughout the country. The American South, where I've spent most of my life, is a veritable hotbed of churches and of interesting church names. Arkansas is home to Bar Nun Cowboy Church, Versions of which also exist in Oklahoma, Texas, and Iowa. The South has played host not only to Hellhole Swamp Baptist Church in South Carolina and Waterproof Baptist Church in Louisiana, but also to the first church of the Last Chance World on Fire Revival and Military Academy in Florida. Adding numbers to the mix, show me a town of any size that lacks a First Presbyterian, and I'll show you a landscape wiped clean by a meteor strike. Search for a First Baptist, and you'll uncover inevitably a second. So ubiquitous, in fact, our First and Second Baptist churches that the Southern Baptist Convention alone boasts more than a dozen Third Baptist churches and one-fourth. Methodists, too, are incorrigible numbers. One Methodist body in Waco, Texas, was a Fifth Methodist church for decades, until rechristening itself First Methodist. And I would add that the article does not mention that one of the more famous churches in America is the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Now, I cite all of that because it makes the point that people attach varying degrees of importance to the church, with some not understanding the purpose of the church at all. And while I'm good with having a fish fry... And fellowship is an important part of church life. Do we really want to be known primarily for our fish fry, if we ever, if we ever have one, or our red leather sofa, if we ever have one of those? And so to begin this new year, I'm taking the first three weeks starting this past Sunday to remind us regarding what the church is to be about and in particular what our church is about. So last week we were reminded of the importance of taking time to plan the eternally significant work of the church. And I read for you our church's 10-year plan. We are just over two years into that now, so we have less than eight years to go. 
But I read our 10-year plan, and we made copies of that available for you. If you were not here and unable to get one, those are available at the information center desk out in the lobby. And if you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen online at our website to that message because it will hopefully uh, add an additional motivation to you for what I'm going to be saying today and next week. Today and next week, I'm going to talk in very practical ways about the importance of the church and then each of our commitment to the church in various ways. But I want that to be in the context of what the church is designed to do, not simply a legalistic list of rules that you need to and we need to carry out together. So please listen to that message if you were not able to do so last week. Today I want to remind us of the centrality of God's church to what he is doing in his world and then the need for each of us to be absolutely committed to that. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for gathering us now and quieting our hearts so that we can focus our attention upon your truth, and in particular today, your truth about your church and why you have given it, why it's important for us each to be a part of it and give ourselves to what the church is to be carrying out in your world. So Lord, we ask you to help us to do that with open hearts that are willing to change, willing to recommit willing to use our lives for the purpose for which you've given it in the church that you've given to bring yourself glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we provide an outline that's inserted in your program. I encourage you to take that out. And you're going to see that there are three major points for today's message. But I already know I'm not going to get to the third in the allotted time. And so we'll see that third point next week. And I even expect to have a bit of a hard time getting through even the first uh, two points. So let's have at it. I say, first of all, the church is central to God's plan. In our recent Discovering God series, that's during our 11 o'clock hour, a series called You've Got Questions, God Has Answers, one of the questions we answered was this, isn't the church just a man-made institution? And I said regarding that, the role of the church in one's spiritual life is a matter of considerable discussion and misunderstanding. One extreme sees the church as necessary for salvation. For example, Pope Boniface VIII wrote in the year 1302, quote, outside the church, there is no salvation. More recently, the Roman Catholic Church has sought to clarify this in its 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church, which restated it as, quote, how are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. And explaining the last part of that statement, that salvation comes through the church, the leading Catholic apologetics organization called Catholic Answers says this, since the sacraments are the ordinary means through which Christ offers the grace necessary for salvation, and the Catholic Church that Christ established is the ordinary minister of those sacraments, it's appropriate to state that salvation comes through the church. So in layman's terms, for all of us, this means that since, according to Roman Catholicism, mass and other ordinances, sacraments are required for the forgiveness of sins, and since one can only receive those through the Catholic Church administered by a priest of the church, then unless one dies in the good graces of that church, he will not go to heaven. That's what that's saying. On the other hand, in part as a reaction to that extreme that sees the church as the vehicle through which salvation is achieved, many on the other side see no value or necessity for the church at all. For instance, William Hendricks estimates that, quote, 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. That's from his book, Exit Interviews. His own comments regarding that trend are quite revealing. He says that these, quote, backdoor believers have, quote, become quite resourceful at finding ways to meet God apart from a local church, and that those leaving the church behind have often found a, quote, better way. He notes that, quote, quite often they describe themselves as moving closer to God, but further away from the church. And what's his message to these church, what he calls dropouts? He says, I don't blame you for walking out. 
Now, that sentiment is very similar to the popular phrase we hear today. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Surveys say that the fastest growing category of religious observance is none, N-O-N-E. When asked about a religious affiliation, more young people are checking the none box. So clearly, we need to be reminded from God's word regarding the importance of the church to the mission he's carrying out in his world. And so I ask you to stay with me as we do a biblical theology of the central role of God's church in his world. Now, I admit it becomes somewhat tedious as I go through this. So do your best to stay with me because the content is actually extremely important. And it begins with Jesus giving instructions to his first followers and by an extension to us when after he had completed his earthly ministry of teaching and living a perfect life and dying for our sins, the now resurrected Lord said just before he ascended back to heaven these famous words, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now notice I have the word baptizing there emphasized. I have it underlined, italicized, and bolded for you. So so remember that word baptizing. We'll come back to it in a bit. And then at the end of the Gospel of Luke... The ministry of Jesus is at the very same point. He has completed his earthly ministry. He's giving final instructions to his first followers. But Luke adds a few details about this commission that God has given to them and to us. He quotes Jesus as saying, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. It will begin at Jerusalem, but stay in the city, that is Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. So this is going to go to all nations. It's going to start, Luke tells us, in the city of Jerusalem. And the content of the message that's going to be preached is there will be repentance and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Jesus Christ. So please mark those words that I have emphasized for you. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. So baptizing, repentance, forgiveness of sins. As I say, we'll come back to those in a bit. Now I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 1. After the first four books of the New Testament give us the life and the ministry of God the Son, Jesus Christ, when he lived on earth before ascending back to heaven, the fifth book in your New Testament, which is the book of Acts, picks up where those left off. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he wrote the book that we had just referenced that has his name, the Gospel of Luke. And he says at the beginning that he's continuing the story that he had started with the Gospel of Luke. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is the same name to whom the former book, the Gospel of Luke, had likewise been addressed. In my former book, that is, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So Luke is saying we left off with Jesus going back to heaven, but not before he gave what we call the Great Commission. And we just saw those at the end of Matthew and Luke. And that involves a message of repentance And forgiveness of sins. And the response is to include baptism. In these opening verses in the book of Acts. Luke is reminding us of the things that Jesus commanded. And that he predicted would happen in the coming days. After he ascended back to the Father. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. He quotes Jesus as saying this. Verse 5. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised. Which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they're to be in Jerusalem to receive power, and that means being baptized with the Holy Spirit, says Jesus. Luke states Jesus' final words yet again in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, offering another summary of the mission as part of him bringing everyone up to speed regarding where he left off so that he can continue the story. Verse 8. 
You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but then it will extend to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the mission is going to start in Jerusalem and then expand outward. You will receive power in the form of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's where they are, and that's precisely what happens in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Verse 4 of chapter 2. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here is this promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this initial baptism of the Holy Spirit was accompanied in this case by the miracle of speaking in the tongues of several nations. A way of emphasizing that this mission is that's starting is for, as we saw in Matthew and we saw in Luke, for all nations. Now, by the way, this is an aside, since undoubtedly in your mind you're going, what is this speaking in tongues thing? These languages that they spoke were human languages that the hearers understood. They were not unintelligible language, as, in, as is done in modern Pentecostal churches. I know this because many of you know that I grew up Pentecostal. And how do we know that these were languages, human languages, that they understood? Verse 8. The hearers say, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? The end of verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our tongues. So now when this happens, people are confused, as you might imagine. So Peter begins to explain what's going on in verse 14. And he does that all the way down to verse 36. After which, those in the crowd ask this question. Verse 37. At the end of verse 37, they say, brothers, what shall we do? And notice carefully Peter's response to that in verse 38. Repent. Here's what you should do. Repent, he says. Now, we saw that word already, didn't we? Remember, I italicized it, molded it, and underlined it. Repent. We saw that in the Great Commission that Jesus gave, that repentance will be part of the message. Repent, Peter says, and be baptized. We saw that as well in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, that those who respond will be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, Luke had said the message would involve repentance and forgiveness of sins. So what do you have starting right here? You have beginning the mission that Jesus gave. Jesus said, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to wait for this power. They receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins that's going to go to all nations is starting. The Great Commission is beginning here. Now, I took one brief aside to talk about speaking in tongues and the fact that those are human languages. With Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, I need to take another just brief aside because many of you may be in your mind going, hey, the way that sounds, repent and be baptized Every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. It sounds like you get forgiveness of sins only when you're baptized. So what's up with that? Well, when it says baptized for the forgiveness of sins, it's not saying you're baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. As if baptism is part of our salvation, it is not. Rather, it's be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins you have already been given. Now, we use the preposition for in English in the same kind of way, and it has that dual function in Greek as well. We might say something like, go to the store for milk. If I say that, what am I saying? I'm saying, go to the store in order to get milk. Or we might say, he got paid for his work, which does not mean he got paid in order to do his work. (laughs) That'd be nice. Get paid first. But instead it means he got paid because of his work. So for can mean in order to or because of. And here, in keeping with what the rest of Scripture teaches, 
about salvation being apart from works, including the work of baptism, it means because of. Be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins you received when you repented. So clearly now, what has started at this very moment is the mission that Jesus gave. That would involve, Luke told us, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And those who respond would be baptized. And in fact, three verses later, that's exactly what happens. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. The mission has started at this very point in Acts chapter 2. But something else very, very important has started at precisely the same time. The Great Commission has started, but something else has started as well. Remember that they were baptized with the Spirit. And that's not the water baptism of chapter 2 and verse 41. Instead, it's an initiation by the Spirit into the body of Christ, just as water baptism is initiation into the local church. In chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus actually contrasted water baptism with this Spirit baptism. And the church is made up of people who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we see this when a few decades after the events of Acts chapter 2, a few decades after the beginning of the mission and the first occurrence of baptism of the Spirit, we find other Christians of whom it was said this. We were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. Now, most of you know that the body of Christ is a, uh, is a metaphor for the church. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, that is the church. This is the ongoing reality for every Christian that we are baptized by the spirit, made part of his body, the church, when we believe, when we are saved, when we become Christians. But you might say to yourself, understandably, but they had this experience of speaking in tongues when they were baptized by the Spirit. Was that supposed to happen to me? The answer is no. And we know this because in the very chapter of 1 Corinthians 12 that I've quoted and that's on the screen, in that very chapter, when it says all believers are baptized by the Spirit, it explicitly denies in that chapter that all believers speak in tongues. So the idea that in order to know that you were baptized by the Spirit, you have to speak in tongues is refuted in this very chapter. It says all of us are baptized by the Spirit, but it says this with regard to speaking in tongues. Are all apostles? Now, what's the expected answer to that? Well, I'm asking. Okay. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So to say, as some do, and the Pentecostal church in which I grew up said this very thing, in order to be baptized in the Spirit, in order to know that you were baptized in the Spirit, you must speak in tongues. Everyone who is a Christian must speak in tongues. It's refuted by 1 Corinthians 12 itself. We know, for example, apostles are no more. And so it may be, and in fact is the case, that other things on this list are no more as well, including speaking in tongues. Now, alas, I don't have time to prove scripturally that that's the case, that speaking in tongues, as was done then, is not happening today because it's not germane to the point I'm making. If you want the proof of that, I encourage you to read a little book we have in our resource center called To Be Continued by Sam Waldron. So the body of Christ, the church, is formed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if we know when the baptism of the Holy Spirit first happened, we would also know when the church first started. you hear that? If we know when the baptism of the Spirit first occurred, we would also know when the church started. Well, we saw that the baptism of the Spirit happened in Acts chapter 2, but was that the first time? Well, years after Acts chapter 2, as the story goes on in the book of Acts, the gospel was preached to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 2, it was all Jews who were present. So the question now was whether these Gentiles who've now received the gospel are on equal footing in the church with Jews. And Peter says this in reporting what happened when he gave the gospel to a group of Gentiles who then became Christians. 
He says the Holy Spirit came on them, excuse me, as he had come on us at the beginning. Now, when was the beginning? And Peter says, and then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's going back to chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus predicting what would happen in chapter 2. And Peter now looking back and calling that the beginning. He's referring back to the events of Acts 2 and saying that was the beginning. The first time the baptism of the Spirit ever happened. And therefore, Acts chapter 2 is the time when the church began as well. And so Peter says, so God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So please understand this, friends. So we've gone through that, as I said, kind of tedious overview. But here's what you need to understand. Both the Great Commission and the church started at precisely the same time in Acts chapter 2. And they not only started together, they moved forward together. As Luke documents now in the book of Acts, the spread of the mission from Jerusalem to regions beyond, he also documents the growth of the church, which is coextensive with it. He gives throughout the book of Acts several progress reports on the mission, and the church is an integral part of that progress. Here are a few of those progress reports. At the end of Acts chapter 2, after this phenomenon of the starting of the mission and the creation of the church by the baptism of the Spirit happens, at the end of Acts 2, he says this, about 3,000 were added to their number that first day, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As time goes on, the progress of the church continues. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. But notice By the time of Acts chapter 6, where are they still located? They're still located in Jerusalem. How many churches are there in the world at this point? One. It's located in Jerusalem. But remember, the mission is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and beyond. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 9, as you move forward, it says this, The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So the mission is expanding. At the same time, churches are expanding. They go hand in hand. The mission and the church not only started together, they go forward together. Again, in Acts chapter 16, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And then finally, at the very end of the book of Acts, the last two verses of the entire book of Acts say this. For two whole years, Paul stayed in Rome and he welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In those final two verses in the book of Acts, It's telling us the mission has expanded from Jerusalem to now the capital of the empire in Rome and churches are established in all of those places in between. And this is because, friends, the Great Commission and the church go together. You cannot have one without the other. So important is the local church to the work of God. Here's the kind of language the Bible uses to describe it. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and he says this, I am writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Now notice, in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Well, that's heady stuff, isn't it? The church is God's household, and the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And this is referring not merely to the church as the collection of all believers worldwide. There is that concept in the Bible, the worldwide body of Christ. But here it's referring to the expression of the body of Christ in a particular location, what we call the local church. The local church is God's family and the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I know it's referring to the local church because the context in 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks of the qualifications for pastors and deacons and deacons' wives who only hold their office and do their work in local assemblies like this one. So with all of that then, friends, 
I hope you see the folly of the popular notion that you can take or leave the church. That I'm spiritual but not religious. That I don't believe in organized religion because that's a man-made institution. Contrary to popular opinion, a church is not merely a place we attend, but rather it's a family with a God-given mission with which we are to be actively engaged. Let me say that again. The church is not just a place we attend. It is God's household. It is God's family. It is God's family who have been given a mission. A family and a mission with which we are to be, all of us, actively engaged. The entire New Testament testifies to the importance of Christ's church. Not only is there all that we've already seen, but keep in mind that the bulk of your New Testament was written to local churches and to pastors of those local churches. Have you ever thought of that? And so that's why then theologians who get this, who think about this, who lay this kind of thing out, say things like David Hesselgrave does in this quote, the primary mission of the church, capital C, that is everybody who's part of the body of Christ, wherever they're located, the universal church. The primary mission of everybody who's part of the church, and therefore, he goes on to say, of the church is, small c, that is, the local expressions of that church. The primary mission of the church, and therefore, the church is, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, gather believers into local churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, and the end game is planting new congregations throughout the world. This church is committed to seeing that happen, as we outlined in last week's message. But in order for that to happen, friends, it requires people committed to the work of the church. As I said at the end of the message last week, it will require for us to move in the direction of our 10-year plan, all hands on deck. So the church is indispensable to the mission And hear this, each Christian is indispensable to the church. And that's because the church is central to God's plan and, I say in your outline, the church is comprised of God's people. That is, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a member of and a participant in God's church. Now, that notion of the necessity of church membership has fallen on very hard times. It's in keeping with this erroneous mindset that I mentioned at the beginning, that it's okay to pursue your relationship with God apart from involvement in his church. It's certainly true that the church is not the vehicle of salvation, as one extreme says, but it's also not true that the church is is dispensable, that it's unnecessary. And as a result of all of this, there are many who see no importance to the church, But there are others who opt to at least attend, but never join. So I want to spend some time talking about the necessity of joining, being a member of a local church where you use your gifts and your abilities as part of the family of God to move the mission of God forward. Now, to be fair, part of the reason many object to membership is because they just don't think they see it in Scripture. And there's a sense in which that's true that I'll talk about in a bit. But for now, let's see the concept of membership as being taught throughout the Bible. I say in your outline this, the function of membership is biblical. That is, the fact of membership, the necessity of membership is taught in the Bible in a number of ways. Let me give you some of those. You have passages that speak like this. The whole church coming together. Now, when it refers to the whole church, to whom does it refer? The only realistic answer is the church's members. It can't mean the whole church worldwide coming together in, in this case, Corinth, the city of Corinth. But no, it's the members of the local assembly in the city of Corinth, to whom, by the way, this very letter was written. 
That's why New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett translates this verse as, quote, the whole church assembling together and all its members. Imagine the leaders of the Corinthian church walking into a church-wide meeting. How could they have known when the whole church was indeed together without knowing who was a member and who wasn't? It implies that they had a verifiable membership. In addition, the instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership only make sense in the context of membership. The Bible uses several terms to refer to the office of pastor. One of those is the term overseer. The Bible says whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That is, whoever desires to be a pastor desires a good thing. But that raises the question of what or whom we're to oversee. How can we provide spiritual oversight if we don't know exactly those for whom we're responsible? Just a few verses later, the same chapter says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The local church is here again compared to a family And no one is a casual member of a family. Instead, membership in a family is a very definite thing. We're told with regard to the spiritual oversight that pastors and leaders are to exercise. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, how can we fulfill our responsibility as under shepherds to all the flock... Unless we know who is part of the flock and who's not. Hebrews 13. Your leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So for whom will our church's leadership give an account? Everyone who walks in and out of our church services? No, it has to be the members of the church for whom we will be answerable. How can we be responsible for someone until we know he or she is committed to our care? The Bible's instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership can best be obeyed when there is a well-defined church membership. And in addition to these, there are the metaphors that are used to describe the local church in Scripture. Things like a flock, a body, a household. They only make sense in the context of membership. A flock of sheep isn't a random collection of ewes and rams and lambs. Shepherds know their flocks. They know which sheep are theirs to care for and which are not. Sheep belong to specific flocks. This is also the way it should be for God's spiritual sheep. The same analogy is true for human body. Your body isn't a casual collection of loosely related parts. You don't keep your fingers in your pocket until you need them. They're joined. They're members of the body. The local body of Christ should be like This as well, those joined to Christ who are members of the body should express that relationship through a visible membership. And then you've got the household, the family. You're either a member or you're not. If you're part of the family of God, you should show it by joining a local expression of God's family. One pastor says of all of these this, God has given us several pictures of the church, not one. It's not just to emphasize and prove the point by repetition, but also to say different things about what it means to be a member of the church. To be part of a body means to belong to a living, functioning, serving, witnessing community. To be a sheep in the flock means belonging to a community dependent on Christ for food, protection, and direction. To be a member of a family is to belong to a community bound by common fatherhood. Put together, you have the main functions of an individual Christian. Evidently, we are meant to fulfill these not on our own, but together in the church. This gives us one answer to the question, why should we join a church? And then last, there are the instructions of church discipline in the Bible, which only make sense in the context of membership. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said that a professing Christian who is in unrepentant sin is to be dealt with by removal from the church. Likewise, the Bible says this, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, claims to be a brother or sister, but is in unrepentance and expel the wicked person from among you. Now, friends, I want you to think about it. You can't expel someone who's not first in. Am I right about that? So the biblical requirement for church discipline assumes church membership. So all of this, one author summarizes it by saying, in the New Testament, there is no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. There was no spiritual drifting in the Bible. Okay. 
But why is it not more explicit in Scripture? Why isn't there some place in the Bible that says, Verily, they asked for a raise of hands to indicate their intention to join. Or why isn't there some place that says, Behold, as many as desired membership filled out an application and met with the elders to confirm eligibility. Well, That's because even though the function of membership is thoroughly biblical, the form of membership is extra biblical. The function, the thing, is absolutely taught in Scripture. But the way it's done for us now is extra biblical. That is, it's outside the Bible. Not unbiblical, but extra biblical. Now let me explain. We get caught up on how we join rather than that we are to join. And when we don't see the how we join in an explicit verse in the Bible, we then say the whole thing is just a man-made, made-up thing. I don't need to be part of that. Where in the Bible does it say that at the end of the 930 service, Ken comes down on the floor, he introduces somebody, he makes a couple wisecracks, we all vote on the person into membership after we have had them sign our church covenant. Now, where does in the Bible does it say that? Well, it doesn't say that anywhere, therefore the whole thing is made up. So why doesn't the Bible describe in detail how people became members of the church? The answer to that is simple, friends. There was only one way back then, and it was by baptism. You became a member of the church at the moment you were baptized. And in addition to that, there was only one way you were baptized. You became a member of the church at that moment. But in addition to that, we have two factors that are present in our day that did not exist during the first century that require us now to have some method in addition to baptism of determining membership. And here are what those two factors are that we have today that you didn't have in the book of Acts. Multiplication of churches and the mobility of Christians. Now, by multiplication, I mean the increase of individual churches in a given geographic area. In the time of the New Testament, there was most often only one church in a the city. Therefore, there was no need to identify with a specific church since it was, in effect, the only game in town. And you got baptized into that church and you became a member of the church. And in addition to that, even if in the first century, in a given locality, there was more than one church, lack of mobility didn't allow you to go from one to the other. So the practice of church hopping was completely unknown in the first century. In the New Testament, there was no such thing as an unchurched Christian. When one was baptized, that means, the word literally means immersed. So when one was baptized, when one was immersed to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ after they had made a definite decision to follow Christ, so not infant baptism, he was then united with a particular local church in his area. The modern practice of church membership is therefore nothing more than commitment to serve in a particular local church. Membership is but a synonym for commitment to a local church. Now you can skin that cat a lot of ways. You can say raise your hand. You can say fill out a card. You can say fill out an application. But there has to be some way in order for the function that the New Testament clearly teaches to be carried out in our day. For us, we have people fill out an application to give their testimony of being Christians. They meet with a few from our leadership team so we can ask any questions we might have about that. And then as many of you have observed, they are voted on by the congregation at the end of a worship service. But the Bible doesn't describe that form, and so we assume it's not necessary. It is true that the ways, the forms we use to do membership are extra-biblical outside the Bible, not the same as unbiblical, as I said, but they are required to fulfill what the Bible does say about the necessity of membership. Now, some of you have been attending church for a very long time and have not committed to the Lord's work. 
The Bible doesn't give a time frame for you to evaluate a church. How long should it take for you to decide, is this a place that's preaching the gospel and carrying out the Great Commission and where I can grow and serve? I don't know how long that is exactly. Six months? It seems to me a year is plenty of time. Now, I accept some responsibility for this. Because you know that periodically throughout the year we have what we call our newcomers orientation class. A four-week class. I give people information about our church. And at the end of that, I say, now you've heard all about us. You've heard about what we believe, what we're trying to accomplish. You need to pray about whether this would be the place God would have you to serve and grow. And then I say, I'm going to leave that to you. We're not going to hassle you. In in fact, even when I announce that we're having the next class, I always say that if you attend that class, it's for information, and we're not going to hassle you after that. And I have made good on that. To my knowledge, I have never followed up with anybody to say, okay, what's it going to be? But we've probably, probably gone too far with that. I mean, after six months, after a year, being able to evaluate the church, we're either a solid church or we're not. If you have questions still that need to be answered, then by all means, let's get those questions answered. But if you have some doubts about whether or not this is the church for you, that is perfectly okay. Let me help you find another church. But see, friends, here's the situation. By all means, you must find a church. And you must commit to a church, whether it's here or someplace else. So what is the next step for you? Now, you can't be a member of the church if you're not a Christian. So the first thing is you become a Christian. That's why we have people fill out an application so that we can know, are they really a Christian? And we... Ask them, meet with them to ask any questions that we might have about that. Or you may be a Christian, but perhaps you've never been baptized. The next step for you is to be baptized, symbolizing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Or maybe you are a Christian and you've been baptized, but you've been a member of another church, but you've been out of church for a long period of time. Maybe you're no longer on the rolls of another church. If you are, you need to be transferred from there to here, if this would be the place for you. If not, then we hear your testimony and salvation and baptism, and then we go from there. And then let me just add, and then we are done for today. Now, for those of us who are members of God's church, we've taken the step of joining the family of God. Remember, this is a family that God has brought together, but a family brought together for a purpose, namely to carry out his mission, which means that all of us need to then be not only members with our name on a roll somewhere, but rather to be actively committed to the work that the church is doing. So I ask you at the beginning of this 2019 year to consider that. Am I committed to the work of the Lord? If I have children, am I teaching my children commitment to the work of the Lord? Uh, Years ago, decades ago, I was a youth leader at a church. Every time I say that, I just go, those poor kids. (laughs) I was a horrible youth leader. I mean, I look at what Larry and Julie do, and I go, oh, man, I was a really horrible youth leader. But one of the experiences I remember with that was we would set up activities, events for the kids, and I would make phone calls prior to the event. This was before the days of email and all of that. Make a phone call. Mom or dad might answer the phone, and I say, hey, I'm calling to find out if little Johnny is going to our event this weekend. And they say, often they would say this, I don't know, let me go ask him. And I'm thinking, no, don't go ask him, tell him. Because, see, that's what I grew up with. I grew up with a family that was committed to the Lord's work. And they taught me to be committed to the Lord's work. And when the church did something that involved me, I was to be there, if at all possible. So we didn't say, hey, Johnny or Susie, do you like this particular thing they're doing? No, your church is doing this thing, and you are a part of that. I encourage you to be committed yourselves and then to model that before your families as well. Now, I could go 
You know, there are all sorts of implications of this, aren't there? One final one, honest. Let's make a resolution this year to be on time for church. How about that? Now, you're sitting there, if you're sitting there cringing going, I walked in late and he's nailing me. Just remember this. I sit up front and I don't see who comes in late. This is the only thing I know. I know this, that when I take my seat right there every week, there are not nearly as many people in here at 930 than when I come up 10 minutes later to do the prayer. Sometimes when I come up to do the prayer and I look out there, I kind of go, wow, where'd you all come from? So that's all I know. There are more people here 10 minutes after we start, and often a lot more than when we start. It's a small thing, except that it indicates our readiness to worship and our commitment to that very important thing. Lots of implications of that. Next week, we will continue with some more so that we together can start the year out resolved. For today, we are resolved. We are resolved to join together. We have a slide that says that. We are resolved. We said last week to advance God's mission together. We are resolved this year to join together as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your word that tells us about your church, how it is comprised, how it is central to what you are doing in your world. And so, Lord, help us to be people who love it as you love it. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So help us to love it. Loving it means loving what you love, loving the people that comprise the church, loving the mission that's been assigned to the church. And so, Lord, help us to commit to that this year, joyfully doing so, not in a legalistic way, not because we have to, not because pastor got on my case about it, because it's the right thing to do, because it's the purpose for which you have saved us and you have left us here to carry out your work together in your family, the church. And having done that with all hands on deck, Lord, we ask you to move us forward in the work that you have given us to do here and the vision that we have laid out to bring glory to you by advancing your work in this part of your world. Lord, as you do that, we together, we, your people, having banded together, having joined together, will give you the praise and the glory for all you accomplish. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.